Welcome to Pastor Stephen Samuel's podcast, where it's our desire that you'll be encouraged and empowered to live as a disciple-making follower of Jesus. Tonight, I want to give you just some practical tools how to deal with discouragement, defeat it in your life. And so with that being said, uh, I'll kind of start off with this, just a definition of what discouragement is, because a lot of times we feel around that idea, but we don't really nail it down. So what is discouragement? If you look up the Webster's defini- de- definition of what discouragement is, it says it's a loss of confidence. It's a loss of confidence, enthusiasm, or being dispirited. It's a sense of, I used to have a lot of zeal about what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and then sometimes just the emotional trauma of death, uh, fear, tragedies, things happening in life can get to your heart. You know, the water that's outside of the boat starts getting in the boat, and the boat starts going down. Um, Another definition for discouragement is being deprived of courage, being deprived of courage or of confidence. Um, It also says feelings that are, feelings, when you have feelings of being hindered, in something that you're doing because you're not longer feel like you have favor in your life. Does that make sense? You feel like maybe God's favor has left me, so therefore I can't go on, or the favor of my boss or spouse or kids. I'm no longer in favor with them, and so now I'm discouraged. I'm not moving forward. And the last thing it says, feeling dissuaded from a mission or a purpose in life when discouragement kicks in. Um, and I want to tackle this topic, number one, because we all deal with it, but sometimes there's some misperceptions about why discouragement comes. When we talk about it, um, first let me say, we should all expect it. And I'm not saying that in a, a, you know, speaking some heebie-jeebies or, you know, curses over anybody. But the reality is this. I think uh, M. Scott Peck says in his book, The Road Less Traveled, he says, life is difficult. This great truth is one of the greatest truths. It's great because once we realize this truth, we can transcend it. Once you know life is going to be difficult, then you live prepared for difficulty. And when you live prepared for difficulty, you actually can endure through dark seasons of your life. In fact, I'll read the quote here from his book. He says, life is difficult. This is a great truth. One of the greatest truths. It is great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult because once it's accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Let me give you kind of an analogy of how to understand that. I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but I used to go and work out at the gym quite a bit, right? I used to do that. In fact, I took two college courses on weightlifting. And the way you're looking at me right now is the way they looked at me in weightlifting class. Like, are you kidding? And so when we went in there, my goal in, in, in learning how to do weightlifting was so I wouldn't have to take uh, theater and dance appreciation. That was my motivation. It had nothing to do with lifting weights. I just didn't want to be in the theater and dance appreciation class because for all the obvious reasons. And so I'm in this weightlifting class, and the professor, uh, the teacher, who's good, you know, was a great professor, he's telling us, you know, all the stuff you need to know, what kind of weights, what exercises and all that. But then he told us this little process. He says, what you're doing, and most of y'all probably understand this, uh, all you buff guys like Ken, uh, what you're doing when, when you're lifting weights is you're tearing your muscles. 
right? And so you're tearing those muscles. And then what happens is you take a break between intense workouts, a couple days work, break. So you give your muscles a chance to heal themselves. But what, what happens is when a muscle heals itself, it heals itself prepared for you to tear it again. So it heals stronger. So the next time you go to pick up that weight, let's say you do this for a few months and you're struggling with that 50 pound dumbbell the first time and you work it out to where you're sore the next couple of days, that soreness is not just exertion, it's the muscle healing itself as well. And so the next time after that healing process, you go to pick up that 50 pounds and it's, you're like, oh, this is easier this time. Well, it's not easier because you psyched yourself up, it's because the muscle got stronger. Does that make sense? And so if you prepare for difficulties by stretching yourself a little bit more and allowing that muscle of faith to be torn, then the next time difficulty comes, it's not quite so difficult because you're used to utilizing the faith that you have, that muscle. You're used to working it. And the more you work it, the greater weight you can lift, right? I remember... In, in the context of, of exercising muscles, I mean, when I first started following the Lord, believing God for a headache to be healed was a big deal. You know what I'm saying? You'd walk around three days with a headache, just trusting the Lord, you know? But then after you, you get victory over that, you get victory over headache, miracles, then you can start believing God for bigger things. You know what I'm saying? Broken bones. You begin to believe God for eyesight. You begin to, and listen, you keep pushing through, you keep, and then eventually your faith gets to a place where you know that you know that you know when you pray, the sick are going to get healed. But it takes time. And listen, there's no shortcuts to building that muscle of defeating discouragement in your life, right? So what is discouragement? We define that. What should you, uh, why should we expect discouragement in our life? Number one, it's just a part of life. Benjamin Idahose, uh, an apostle of the faith in Africa, he said it like this. He said, the purpose of Christianity is not to avoid difficulty, but to nurture the strength of character to offset it when it comes. From the day one, Jesus told his disciples, I'm heading to a cross. From day one, he was expecting difficulty. And not just the difficulty of the end, but the difficulty of the process of getting to that end of great difficulty. And then what he tells us, when we decide to follow him, he says, if anyone desires to come after me, there's a cross involved. There's difficulty involved, right? Now, when, we, when we're in times of discouragement, when we're going through a season of discouragement, let me give you some tips here. Number one, not, when you're in a, a season of dis discouragement, it doesn't mean you're spiritually immature. A lot of times people kind of get into that legalistic mind frame. Well, if you're going through difficulty in life, you, you're just immature in the Lord. You're struggling because you're a young believer. Not necessarily. Listen, there's saints that struggle their whole life. They battle all kinds of hell. That doesn't mean they're immature. In fact, many times it indicates there's a maturity that's trying to come out of them. So difficulty or discouragement isn't a sign of immaturity. I'm not saying always, but many times we look at it as a sign of immaturity in faith, and it's not. It's sometimes a mark of great maturity. The next thing, difficulty doesn't always, or discouragement doesn't always indicate someone has secret sin in their life. You know, we always do that. Well, they must have done something wrong. That's why they're going through hell. Listen, that's one of the dumbest ideas out there. People go through tough stuff, not because they've messed up all the time. Now, are there times when you make a mistake and difficulty ensues? 
Absolutely. But even in those times, you can go to the Lord and say, what have I done wrong? And repentance happens, and then there's grace to get through discouragement. Does that make sense? And so just because there's discouragement in your life doesn't mean there's sin in your life. And listen, the voice of the accuser will always tell you they've done something wrong. There's some sin involved in their life. But the voice of the Father will always say, they need you to bear their burdens with them and fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians chapter 5, right? And so it's not a mark of, uh, battling discouragement is not a mark of immaturity. Battling discouragement is not a mark of sin in your life or an indicator of something gone wrong. Battling discouragement doesn't mean God's trying to teach you a lesson. A lot of times we get that into our thinking. Well, God's just trying to teach me a lesson through this hard time in my life, and that's why I'm facing discouragement. That's not the truth. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variance, which means what? When God wants to give you something, it's good. It's not evil, right? And so let's just be really clear. When discouragement comes into your life, it's not the work of God. It's always the work of the devil. How do I know that? Because Jesus said the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come to give you life. I know this is really simple Christian Christian uh, theology, right? God is good. The devil is bad. Bad things come from the devil. Good things come from God. And so this idea that God is using evil things to teach me good lessons will lead you into further discouragement and not lead you out of it. Okay? So why does discouragement hit our life? Discouragement comes because we live in a broken realm, broken by sins of humanity and broken by an enemy who's trying to rob your faith. There's two components of why things are broke. People make mistakes, and you have a devil that's helping them make those mistakes, right? I mean, we're in a battle. There's a real enemy. Like I said Sunday, this is not a cruise ship. This is a battleship. We're fighting. And so there's an enemy out there that wants to destroy your faith in God. And because he wants to destroy that, discouragement's going to come at you. Then there's people, even if it's not the devil, sometimes there's people that just make dumb decisions and it drags you into their mess. And both of those components will come to bring discouragement in your life. Another reason for discouragement, anytime we have false expectations, that me as a believer, I should never struggle. And you know what that's gonna lead to? Discouragement, right? Because if you think following Jesus means I'm never gonna struggle, listen, the man that we're following ended up on a cross. So the anticipation that I'm never gonna have struggles is false expectation. And when you have that false expectation, it's gonna lead to one of two things, frustration and disillusionment, because I'm always expecting good, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not mocking any preachers, but this idea all the time that, you know, God has this great life for you and you can live your best life following Jesus and there's going to be no problems. Listen, you're really leading people down a trail of frustration and disillusionment. Or the flip side of that is you end up in isolation. You run from every time there's negative news. You isolate yourself. Well, you know, this idea that I'm going to struggle, I just stay away from those people. And then eventually you'll find out there's a lot of people that realize the reality of discouragement's gonna come into your life. And then what do you do? You live in a bubble until somebody pops the bubble. And then it's fear, frustration, and disillusionment. So I'm telling you that to say this, it's a real enemy. Discouragement is a real enemy. 
is not necessarily a cause and effect, something you've done to have it attack your life. People break things. There's an enemy trying to destroy your life. But discouragement is a normal, if you will, battle that every believer has to fight. And I can tell you that because we read the stories of so many believers throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, who battled discouragement. And we can glean from their life the tools that they used to fight discouragement. We can and should expect victories over discouragement, and that's the good news. When discouragement comes into your life, there's a strategy that's given to us. There's multiple strategies, but we're going to talk about a few of them today. That's given to us to overcome discouragement. Now, is there any fighters in the room? Boxers? MMA? Are you in MMA? I'm just, just checking. Ken, I told you, man. He's... So I'm not a fighter by any stretch, but every once in a while, I'll watch uh, MMA fights. You know, those are uh, martial arts fighting, you know, just for the funsies. And so the other day, I was, you know, watching this fight, and it happened uh, in 1998. And I've got some pictures to show you. You can kind of get the image in your head. And it's a fight. Happened in 1998. It was like the fight of the year. And there was two guys. The first guy, they'll put his picture on the screen. His name is Emmanuel Yarbrough. Manor Yarbrough is 600 plus pounds. He's a big guy. See that guy right there? You do not want to be on the other side of the ring with that. 600 plus pounds. And the reason there's a plus is because it's hard to find a machine to weigh that size of a man, right? Emmanuel Yarbrough, uh, heavyweight fighter, as you can imagine. And uh, now this is not boxing, this is MMA, which means they just grab you and throw you on the ground kind of thing, right? And so in 1998, he fought this guy named uh, Taseki. Did you, Taseki, you remember the fight, Young? So this is, this is the other guy, you ready? That's him. He looks so cute, right? Little guy, you know how much he weighs? 165 pounds. That's less than me, Right? I'm about 68 pounds, right? 165 pounds. And so when they squared up in the ring, this is what it looked like. It doesn't look good. <laughs> it doesn't look good. And so uh, Taseki, if I'm saying his not r- name right, he took down Emmanuel Yarbrough in five minutes and 33 seconds. And you think, how in the world did he do that? I'm going to tell you how he did it. He ran the whole time. <laughs> You can, you, you can Google the fight and, and watch it, but literally he ran around and round and round and round Yarbrough for five minutes and 30 seconds, and that last few seconds, he made this really stunning move. I think I got it on film here. Let's see here. He made this killer move where he just dove at his feet and knocked him over, and then Yarbrough landed on top of him, trapping him, right? And he kicked his way out, and at the end of the fight, it looked like this. He won. When he got on top of Yarbrough, the story was over because Yarbrough couldn't get back up. And it took him, f- did I write down the time? Five minutes and 44 seconds. And, and, and as you watch the video, which I didn't want to play the video in church because, you know, we're going to come here to watch a fight. But in five minutes, 44 seconds, all the commentators were like, this is insane and he's going to lose. <laughs> I mean, just the whole time, no hope for Desaki, but the whole time was like, if Yarbrough gets one hit on him, he's gone. And listen, Yarbrough got like no hits on him because he just ran and ran and ran and ran the whole time till Yarbrough wore himself out 
and he made his killer move. And then, and then, you know, of course, there was no plan for him to do it. He just was running for his life the whole time, right? But his strategy worked. He wore the enemy out. And then when the, he saw that he was completely exhausted, then he moved in to get him on the ground. And once he had Yarborough on the ground, it was over, right? He got on top of him, pounded him, and that was the end of the story. And it's a good fight story, but it gives me a little hope because I'm about 165 pounds, right? It gives me hope in knowing that no matter how intimidating the enemy is, and in the context of what we're talking about, discouragement, which is a giant, it's a giant because I've seen people battle discouragement for years, and it wipes out their life. It, discouragement leads to depression. Depression leads to clinical problems, and it can wipe you out. And listen, it takes a strategy to get that monster down. And as we talk about the strategy tonight, I want to look at this passage in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, as many of you guys may know, this is what they call the prison epistles. One of the prison epistles where Paul is writing to the Philippian church, but he's writing from jail. Now, I know when I say the word jail, y'all think an American prison with clean, you know, floors and, and beds and cots and sinks and soap and, you know, a, a cafeteria where people eat. This is not the jail in Philippi. It's a jail in the Middle East, which means it's a, it's a Paul is under house arrest and he's probably getting fed occasionally, but he's under the Roman guard, it's, it's just, it's a horrendous situation. Probably spent some time in a hole somewhere and he's being drug around as a prisoner. And yet, it's not the cleanliest, it's not the most healthy, it's not the most uh, homely feeling, you know what I'm saying? It's a miserable place to be. Now, over time, he, is, he moves to house arrest and he's, he's there and he, people can visit him and stuff. But even then, it's not some place that you and I would like to visit. And so when he's in jail here, he writes this prison epistle to the people of Philippi, and he has a long history with the Philippians because he planted the church there. He raised up disciples there, and he's writing, he's conveying his heart to them. He is in a place of potential discouragement, and they are in a place, because they're leaders in jail, of potential discouragement. And he's showing them a pathway how to walk encouraged and victorious battling this demon of discouragement, if you will. So look at Philippians chapter one with me, and I'm gonna read it to you. And let's just read through the text real quick. Philippians chapter one, I'm gonna read to verse 11. It says, Paul and Timothy, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, Timothy was with Paul during this time, and I, I didn't get the, to dig too deep to see if he was obviously in jail with him, but the implication, he wasn't in jail with him, but he was there delivering this letter for Paul to the Philippians. So Paul and Timothy, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy. For your fellowship in the gospel, from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who began this work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That last verse, we've heard that many times, right? He who began this work in you will be faithful to complete it. But Paul is encouraging the Philippian church while he's sitting in jail, telling them, listen, this is how I'm getting through encouragement. This is how you're gonna get through, get through discouragement. Um, what are some first, first things he says here? First, he says what? Here's what Paul says I'm doing. I thank 
my God upon every remembrance of you. And in that is our first, first strategy step, if you will, is thankfulness. Let me tell you, the first thing I do many mornings when I get up or on the mornings when I get up and I feel overwhelmingly discouraged and, you know, all kinds of stuff's going through my head and the enemy is attack, attacking, I have to verbally, out loud with my mouth, start thanking the Lord for what he's done. Thanking the Lord for who he is. God, I thank you for my house. I thank you for the blessings that you put on my, in my life. I thank you for my wife. I thank you for my children's health. I thank you for my vehicle that you've provided. I thank you for the education for my kids. I, and I start thanking the Lord for things that I'm truly thankful for. You know what that does? It keeps you moving. It keeps you running around the giant. And let me tell you what thankfulness does. It takes the focus off of what you don't have and puts the focus on what you do have. Because if you focus on what you don't have, it makes you selfish after a while. You start thinking entitlement ideology. Well, I should have this, I should have that. And God, so-and-so on Facebook, listen, if you compare yourself to people on Facebook, that's not a real world, right? Everybody always puts, it's like the first date, everybody always puts their best foot forward, right? You don't know if they have teeth, you don't know if they have their real legs, you know what I'm saying? You don't know nothing. Everybody always puts the first best things on Facebook. So comparing on social media to other people is gonna produce discouragement in your life. So what do you do? You start thanking God for what you do have, right? Listen, we, if you drove in a vehicle today and you have a place to go home and sleep tonight, you're in the top 5% of wealth in the world. You should be thankful, right? You should be thankful. And I'm not saying that in a guilt trip way. I'm just saying we have so much we don't realize, and of course, with, with all of our communication abilities now, you can look at impoverished communities, but that really doesn't hit home with you, right? It doesn't produce gratitude in you until you choose to be grateful where you're at. So Paul says, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. So the first thing of tackling this giant of discouragement is verbal praise to God for things and for who he is. Notice I said two things there. For the, what you've received from him, whether it's physical, uh, material things, or it's even spiritual things, or it's just relational things. God, I thank you for good friends. I thank you for a boss that I like. <laughs> I thank you for coworkers. I thank you for a church. I thank you for whatever it is. And you begin to be thankful. And the second thing is thanking God for who he is. Listen, there's so many epic songs we can th sing to the Lord about who he is and what he's done for us. And thankfulness, like I said, will get you out of that rut of discouragement, especially when you get up and discouragement starts hitting you, right? The second thing Paul says is choosing, he chose to remember the good things God had done for him, and he chose to remember what? The people that he was interceding for. But notice what Paul's saying, I thank God upon my remembrance of you. So he's not thinking about him, he's thinking about others. And that's a choice. You don't just wake up one day thinking about, you make a choice. I'm gonna focus on the people to pray for. I have a list of people I pray for every day. One person a day, every 30 days, I go through that cycle. I thank God for whoever's on my list that day. Lord, I thank you that you're touching their life. I thank you that you're gonna speak to them today. I thank you that you're gonna reveal yourself to them. I thank you that they're gonna become disciple makers as they're being discipled. And so I have to motivate myself to that place. And then there's not just the work of my flesh that's doing that or work of my ability. I'm asking the Holy Spirit sometimes, God, I need your help being thankful this morning. Let's just be honest. Sometimes we gotta ask for help. And so thankfulness, the second thing is he remembers the good things. 
He remembers the blessings of God in his life. The, the third thing, Paul says he prayed for the Philippian church with joy. Now, this is really important because sometimes we can pray with, with a lot of um, discouragement. Oh, Lord, please. Listen, praying discouraging prayers doesn't make you encouraged. It makes you more discouraged. He says, I pray for you with joy. And so he had to see what God sees about this church to pray with joy. If you find yourself, let me make a little footnote here. If you find yourself praying against people, that's not prayer. That's witchcraft, right? That's speaking your evil desires against other people. Does it have power? Maybe a little, but it's going to do more damage to you than anybody else because it brings in discouragement, right? It brings in discouragement. So Paul clearly says, I'm praying with joy. He wasn't praying, well, God, I'm in jail and they're free and this is horrible. He said, I thank God and I pray with joy for you. Talking to the Philippian church. Keep going here. Paul prayed for the Philippian church with joy, focusing on those who gave him joy. And here's the other word, fellowship. They gave him joy in what? Fellowship. He's writing to a community to extend the bond of fellowship. He was connected with these people. And of course, their way of communication in those days was through letters, transferred back and forth by Paul's disciples. That's how he kept the fellowship with them. They would write, he would write, and it was back and forth. That fellowship dynamic is pivotal, especially now when you're dealing with discouragement. Because usually when you're discouraged, what do you want to do? You want to be alone. Nobody bother me. I'm having a wonderful pity party. Don't send anything but presents, okay? And listen, isolation, and I get it, there's some times where you need alone time. But when you're discouraged, is not the time to be alone. You have to push yourself to be around godly people, right? Not, don't go down and hang with everybody else that's singing the country songs, they lost everything, their dog, their wife, their kid, you know what I'm saying? Don't hang out with those people. You know what I'm saying? I'm not against country music. I just think it's depressing, you know? You find people that are encouraged. I know the people to go to that are encouraging. When I'm discouraged, I go hang out with them. And there's a fellowship that's there. The, the tragedy of, of COVID and COVID-19 and all the crisis that's happened is people have felt isolated. They got to stay at home. And we've all heard the statistics and all that. But what it really does, when we isolate ourselves, then the enemy has a field day in our thinking of discouragement and no one's there to help us, right? That passage that Paul says in Galatians chapter five, when he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Listen, that's hard to do when you're by yourself. Can I just give you a little tip? Those that are here in the sanctuary, those that are watching online, give me, let me give you a little tip. If you feel isolated and you're waiting for somebody at the church to call you, to bail you out, here's a great way to make that happen. You ready? You pick up the phone and you call the church and you say, I just want to talk to somebody. And then we will rally the troops and we'll come and help you. But if you're sitting at home alone, we're thinking you're having a great time, right? You might be on vacation. We don't know, right? And so a lot of times we want people in that victim mindset to reach out to us and or we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, uh, you know, punish them by not responding or saying anything. Listen, you're only hurting yourself. The Bible says, not Stephen says, if you want friends, you have to show yourself friendly. If you want friends and you show yourself mean, you won't get any friends. You have to show yourself 
friendly. You have to reach out for help. That's part of the fellowship dynamic. You reach out, hey, I need some help. I'm feeling depressed. It's okay to call. We're not going to, you know, yell at you, scream at you, think you're less. We're going to think, hey, this is a pretty awesome person. They need help. We're going to jump in and help them, right? You have to reach out. And whether that's phone call or email or Facebook, but just you need to reach out for help. And then when people reach out to you, you need to respond to that and receive the encouraging words that people are giving you, right? It's, it's, it's very uh, difficult to motivate somebody out of discouragement when they want you to join them in it, right? Jesus never joined anybody in their discouragement. He heard their heart cry, he validated their feelings, and then he said, now let's make a way out of this. And listen, Sometimes you need the help, but sometimes when you need the help the most, that's when you have to reach out. It's the most uncomfortable thing. I get it. There's some personalities like me. I'll reach out to anybody, anytime. We'll go do something. You name it, we'll make it happen. There's other personalities that are like, well, I really don't feel comfortable. I know it's uncomfortable. But sometimes doing those uncomfortable things of reaching out for help is what gets you out of the rut. Okay? You can take that one. That was for free. Okay? Discouragement always grows in isolation. It doesn't feel natural to reach out to others when you're discouraged. However, pushing through your feelings of isolation, however, pushing through your feelings of isolation, through your isolation can weaken the power of discouragement in your life. The moment you bring someone else into the relationship, the friendship, into your battle against discouragement, it'll give you strength, okay? Um, Paul speaks of it and he says in verse 11, he says, to the Philippians, he said, I want you to approve all things that are excellent and be sincere without offense and be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory of, and the praise of God. He makes this statement. There's a couple things there in that last statement that I want to pick up. He also gives, so he's talking about being thankful, remembering, prayer, fellowship. And the next thing he says, what? Approve the things that are excellent. More specifically here, he says, and be sincere without offense. Now, this isn't intense because if you're discouraged and then offense kicks into your life or you get offended at somebody because of your discouragement, you get deeper into the pit, right? Um, Paul encouraged the church to respond without offense as they also shared in the possibility of discouragement with him in his time of imprisonment. Let me talk about offense. Emerge, offense emerges when we want to blame, some, blame someone for our suffering. We want to blame someone. Now listen, blame is a natural part of the grief process. Something tragic happens in your life. The first thing that happens, and I'm trying to remember this from memory here, but the first thing that happens is there's shock. Wow, this really happened. Whether it's a loss of a loved one, it's a loss of a friend, uh, loss of a job, the shock of it hits you. And the, the response to tragedy many times, the first step is shock. The next step is denial. Ah, that really didn't happen. Or we live, even though in our mind we know it happened, we act like it's no big deal. You know what that is? That's denial. So shock, then denial, and then there's negotiation. Well, it's not really as bad as I think it is. And we start negotiating the reality of what's really happening to us. Especially when you lose someone that you loved, right? You start negotiating, well, you know, I'm going to be okay, and it's really not that bad, and I'm not really that hurting. Rather than letting your heart grieve, you start negotiating with yourself an alternate reality for what's re against what's really happening. Does that make sense? So after shock, denial, then you start uh, negotiating, then you get into blame. 
this is somebody else's fault. Anger kicks in, offense kicks in. And blame is, it's the doctor's fault, it's the president's fault, it's the government's fault, it's, a, it's the fault of that in-law that gave them the wrong advice, it's the fault of the person that moved him to that hospital, and you start blaming. And then that's usually the last negative step, and the next step is an alliance with reality. This is what really happens. Death happens, loss happens, jobs get lost, and I'm gonna get through this. But the dangerous part is because blame is so far in the game, People get stuck many times in blame, and they get stuck for years. And you know what? That opens a door to deep discouragement. Because when you blame other people, there's no resolution for that. Even if they came to you and said, yes, I'm responsible, I'm sorry, it doesn't take the discouragement away. It doesn't. And so you have to move through blame with this magical principle called forgiveness. You have to forgive. And sometimes, listen, that blame is inward. We blame ourselves. Well, I should have never gotten married to that guy. I should have never gotten married to that girl. Right? We blame ourselves. I should have never, you know, gone to this church. I should have never gotten involved with this company. And you start blaming yourself. That doesn't give you a way out either. But forgiveness does. Repentance does. It gets you a way out. And so blame, it will cause an offense in your heart. And here's what's the crazy, crazy thing about offense. Let me give you a good example or a hypothetical example. Let's say I, uh, this is a dumb example, but we'll use it anyway. Let's say I go out to uh, Foot Locker and I buy a nice brand new pair of shoes and it costs me a whole lot of money, $200 or whatever, and I'm, I'm you know, running on a track I'm, uh, and I twist my ankle, right? And I twist my ankle in such a way that I can't run for an extended period of time. And then I'm limping and maybe I have to get surgery or whatever. I twist my ankle really bad. It'll happen the same way. And when you lose a body part or functionality of your body, you go through the same process as shock, then denial. And then you negotiate, well, it's really not that bad. I'll be fine. And I push it and I hurt myself some more. And then finally, I got to blame somebody. I'm going to blame Nike. <laughs> I'm going to get a lawyer. I'm going to sue these guys. They should have never made these shoes. I start blaming, Right? Here's the, here's the dangerous part of offenses when you get to that blame stage. If I don't forgive and move on with the reality of this is what discouragement's going to come, then every time I see a shoe commercial, that offense grows deeper. Every time I see a track star running, something that pushes that sensitivity of I was unjustly treated and now I'm offended. Every time that button gets pushed, that offense gets bigger and bigger, and bigger, and bigger. And listen, all blame ends up on God's footsteps. Let me tell you what I mean by that. You start off blaming Nike. Then you blame the owner of Nike. I don't even know who that is. And eventually, well, if God really cared about me, he wouldn't have let me fall into this trap. All blame ends up at God. Well, if I'd have never married this person, if God would have kept me from marrying this person, then I would have never been in this tragedy that I'm in. Does that make sense? All blame will end up at God's footsteps, and you end up blaming him. He's the one. From day one, Adam did what? Lord, the woman you gave me, she's the one that messed all this up. Me and the monkeys were fine, and then you put this woman in here, messed it all up. You know what that is? Blame basically means I'm not going to take responsibility for what happened 
I want to make somebody else to blame. And I don't even say responsibility. I'm not going to deal with my offense. I'm going to put it on somebody else. You know what I'm saying? And so eventually, we have to get out of discouragement by releasing offenses. Paul says here, respond without offense. Respond what? Without offense. He says that you may approve all things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. If you live an offended life, it doesn't jeopardize your salvation, but it will jeopardize your, your life here on earth. You could be productive for the kingdom, but if you live in offense, guess what happens? You're not moving forward in the kingdom. You're not bringing people to Jesus. You're too busy being offended. And offense will come out in every part of your life. You can't just be offended at family members and not think it won't leach itself over to relationships in church and at work. Offense will infest every part of your life. So Paul says here, this is the, the, the strategy he tells them how to overcome discouragement. He talks about thankfulness, remembering the good things, prayer, fellowship, staying out of offense. The last thing he says is being filled with the fruits of righteousness. And this is kind of a longer text or a longer concept, but I just want to hit it briefly. He said that literally implies being led by the Holy Spirit in the tense moments of our interactions. I'm led by Holy Spirit, not by offense, not by discouragement, not by how I feel. And let me tell you, the fruits of righteousness is the nature of God that he's put inside of us that comes out. If we'll allow, the Bible says it like this in Romans, they that are the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. Every time you get into a tense interaction or, or a daily interaction, if there's discouragement in your life, you have to choose not to feed that monster and slow down and let it catch you. You have to, you have to keep moving beyond how you feel sometimes, not denying it, but just saying, yes, I feel discouraged, but I'm gonna choose to be thankful. I'm gonna choose to pray with joy. I'm gonna choose to not taking offense, and I keep moving. And what happens is then I have a response where I'm helping others, being kind, in spite of how I feel, in spite of how I feel. Uh, it's an internal choice to let forgive, the forgiving, kind, and giving nature of Jesus to, to come out of you in the midst of adversity. I can look back on my life, and it's the grace of God. Where I've had the most struggle in my life, the Holy Spirit has whispered to me, I want you to go help this person. And it's been the key, if you will, to unlock discouragement and get out of that prison, right? Was it easy? No, it's hard. Is it something you feel like doing? No, it has nothing to do with the feelings, but you tell yourself, this is how I'm going to get out. I'm going to help someone else. I'm going to give when I don't feel like I have anything left to give, and then you get your way out. Right now, uh, there's, there's thousands and thousands of residents in Houma, Louisiana, that are trapped in a precarious situation. Their life has been wiped out, much like our lives were wiped out a number of years ago, right? Hurricane Laura, Hurricane Harvey. If you're battling discouragement, this is a great opportunity for you to get out. Go help. I mean, as early as this weekend, there's teams that are going from Bridge City and pastors that we know that are going out. You can go, I mean, John Mallory was telling me going to He's finding evacuees in, 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 at Home Depot and at the restaurants. And if you find out they're an evacuee, evacuee, man, buy their lunch. You know what I'm saying? Bring them some food. Take care of them. Get them a gift card. What is that going to do? Keep you from getting discouraged. And it's not a selfish, motivated thing. It's just a pathway out of discouragement. 
Here's what I found, and it's a little game I play, of course. If I get attacked with discouragement and the enemy starts figuring out it makes me respond in generosity, he'll, he'll, he'll pull back on the discouragement every once in a while. And I'm serious about that. When I get discouraged, I say, okay, well, I'm feeling discouraged. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Walmart. I'll find somebody. I'm going to go to Starbucks, find somebody that needs some help and bless them. Buy their meal for them, right? I'm going to go out of my way to get, this, get out of discouragement. I'm going to start talking more about Jesus. I'm going to start telling more people at the gas station, at the Walmart, everywhere. You know, if you're coming at me with discouragement, I take it to the offensive. I'm going to go after this. And that's exactly the strategy that Paul lays out here. He says, listen, don't just sit around and wait for somebody to bail you out. And there's nothing wrong with that to wait for encouragement to come. But be aggressive. Go after it. I'm going to move into this place of thankfulness, prayer, remembering the good things that God has done. I'm going to move into this place of uh, aggressively pursuing fellowship. You know, in a couple of weeks, we'll start all of our small groups and we fire up again. Listen, if you're fighting discouragement, get in a small group. They'll get it out of you. I promise. I've talked to all the small group leaders. They're crazy. They're great. Get in a small group. That'll work discouragement out of your life. Okay? The last thing. Paul says here, um, verse 22, says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. It's the last, uh, or the last thing that Paul says here in this tension of battling discouragement. And I, and I get it because I've felt it just like you've felt it. There's always this desire, Lord, I just want to go home. Like, I'm ready to go home. And here's the, here's the, the danger of that. You could eclipse a life of fruitfulness when discouragement pushes you to that place. And I'm not talking just, I'm not talking, you know, suicide. That's definitely the wrong path. But sometimes we give up too soon. And we think, God, I just want to exit out of this plan. And if it doesn't mean dying, sometimes we just, God, I just want to get out of this mess. And so I make changes in my life. I get out of the job. I get out of the community. I leave town. You're running. Discouragement's going to come again. And Paul is saying that here. He says, listen, it'd be better for me to go home. Of all the guys that could have said, I want to go home and probably got it, Paul could have. He said, it'd be better, it'd be easier for me to go home. And I'm in this tense, tense place of struggling to stay or to go. But he says, but for the sake of the Philippian church and the church as a whole, he's saying, it's more fruitful for me to stay. Listen, you wouldn't have a good percentage of your Bible if Paul would have stopped at Philippians. Centuries of church leaders, centuries of millions of believers have benefited from Paul making a decision to stay rather than go. And if you think, well, that's Stephen, that's the Apostle Paul. I haven't wrote any books, especially nothing Holy Script. Listen, you have no idea the impact your life will have on generations later when you overcome the monster of discouragement generations to come. Listen, if we live in a place of discouragement, your impact is not just here and now, it's generational because you could short eclipse the effectiveness God wants to do through you. And I'm telling you that because, listen, as we wrap this message up, I'm telling you this because we're not ignorant, as Paul says later on, of the enemy's devices. You're going to heaven, no doubt. The assurance of our salvation is in us. But if he can keep you in the pit of discouragement, 
especially when we go through trying times as we're, the ones we're in now. If it can keep you in a pit of discouragement, then your effectiveness is mitigated. Lives aren't changed for the gospel. You say, well, Stephen, I just want somebody to empathize. Okay, I get that. But that window should be short and we should move into encouragement. We should move into the offensive of reaching the lost, of thankfulness, prayer, celebrating the good things that God's done for us, not taking offenses and taking down the beast of discouragement. I'm challenging you guys, listen, as we move through the months ahead, listen, here's the great news, an encouraging word. Every battle has an end. Every battle has an end. COVID, there will come a day, it will have an end, right? All the turmoil that's happening around us politically, it will have an end. The question is, are you gonna come out strong and encouraged? Or are you gonna live in bitterness for what's happened? We want you to come out strong. And this, I believe, is a pathway God's given us. Philippians chapter one, you can actually, the whole book of Philippians is a great text. But I believe God wants to move some of us to a place of overcoming discouragement in our life. Let's pray as we wrap this up. Thank you for listening to Stephen's podcast. To connect with us or to order his book, A Reason for Hope, visit stephensamuel.org. You can also find him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at You guessed it, Stephen Samuel. Thanks for listening.